Get ready for tonight's headlines. George Mad Bomber Metesky arrested for largest ever scavenger hunt in New York City. Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court strikes down laws on first and second trimester. And World War II, Allies triumph in Battle of Bunagona. Japan fights with zeal and enthusiasm. Plus, coming up, we'll meet Mrs. Johnson, the world's first China transplant patient. Those are the headlines. How about I just poison your soup? News Bang. Exposing the bare facts even when they're naked. 1957. The Mad Bomber has been caught. George Metesky, a.k.a. The Mad Bomber, was arrested by the NYPD today for planting over 30 bombs in New York City over 16 years. The lunatic's rampage began in 1940 when he left his first explosive device in a phone booth, causing widespread panic and a 50-cent repair bill. Metesky targeted public buildings and movie theatres, using storage lockers and restrooms as his sick hideouts. Eyewitnesses described him as a man with a screw loose and definitely not right in the toilet. The police hunt intensified after Metesky started leaving notes at crime scenes signed Fido, which led them to his pet poodle, who then squealed on him. Detective Al Capone said, We knew we were onto something when we found blueprints for an exploding bidet. Metesky's motives remain unclear, but sources close to him say he was disgruntled with life and had issues with plumbing. He will face charges of multiple counts of attempted murder and one count of littering for all those unused matches. Omarihood. 1973. In a landmark decision, the US Supreme Court has ruled that women can now have an abortion during the first two trimesters of pregnancy. The court, better known for their work on Roe v. Wade, struck down laws banning the practice, much to the delight of women everywhere. The ruling means that American gals can now terminate a pregnancy without fear of being dragged to a back alley by a maniac. Reaction has been mixed with some hailing it as a victory for choice and others calling it a license to kill. The decision has sparked debate about the role of morality and religion in politics. Some claim it's none of government's business what happens between a woman and her doctor, while others believe that Almighty God should have final say on who lives or dies, unless they're sentient cows or invading Iraqis. 13. 1943. 1943 and the Battle of Bunagona in New Guinea finally came to an end today, with an Allied victory. The battle, which lasted longer than a British summer, was part of the New Guinea campaign and pitted Australian and American forces against the Japanese. It's thought that the Allies chose New Guinea because it was on their way home from Bali. The objective was to eject the Japanese from their positions, or positions as they were known then. The Japanese had dug themselves in deep, like an ostrich with its head in the sand, or so they thought. Enter General Mad Dog Smithers of the Aussies, and General Blood and Guts Johnson of the Yanks. Together, they devised a cunning plan, Operation Shock and Awe, which involved playing ACDC at full volume all night long. After weeks of fierce fighting, with more back and forth than a game of cricket, the Allies emerged victorious. Casualties were high on both sides. One witness said it was like Black Friday at Harrods, but with more amputations. As for New Guinea itself, it remains the world's second largest island, just pipped 
to first place by Great Britain after Brexit. News Bang, unmasking the face of deception. Forecasting tomorrow's meteorological mosaic, here's Shakanaka Giles. Tomorrow's weather. The day will start off with a frosty bite, like biting into a cold custard tart. In the southeast, it'll be a crisp 5 degrees, perfect for a brisk morning walk. Moving over to the Midlands, expect some scattered showers, as if Mother Nature is having a temperamental tea party. In the northwest, there's a chance of snow flurries, so don't forget to wrap up warm if you're heading that way. It'll be as white as a wedding dress, but hopefully less stressful. And finally, in London, it'll be a balmy 8 degrees with clear skies. Perfect for those who fancy a spot of rooftop sightseeing. In summary then, frosty starts, temperamental showers and snowy flurries. Stay warm and dry, and that's all the weather. Nineteen sixty nine. The year is nineteen sixty nine, and Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev narrowly escapes an assassination attempt. His tenure as general secretary, however, remains a paradox of political stability and foreign policy triumphs marred by corruption, inefficiency, economic stagnation, and a widening technological gap with the West. The dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 sees the country's 15 constituent republics declare independence. Mikhail Gorbachev's reform efforts falter, ultimately leading to his resignation and the end of the Soviet parliament. For more on this extraordinary tale of intrigue and woe, we turn to our intrepid reporter, Brian Bastable. In this battlefield, time is my enemy. Every second I spend here, I feel the Soviet bear bite deeper into my flesh. And yet, it's been over 50 years since Leonid Brezhnev's brush with death in that assassination attempt we all thought was just a rumor. But as you join me now on this front line of time and history, the secrets of yesteryear are being laid bare before us like corpses on a battlefield. And who can forget those days? Days where fear ruled every waking moment and uncertainty stalked our dreams like jackals around a campfire. It was the year of our Lord 1969 when men still had hope for change, when they believed that their actions could make a difference in this world filled with strife and conflict. But what did they get instead? A lifetime under the watchful eye of Leonid Brezhnev's iron grip as he led them down a path towards political stability at any cost, even if it meant corruption, inefficiency, economic stagnation, and technological gaps with the West becoming an accepted part of life for millions upon millions of people living under his rule. And then came Gorbachev with his reform efforts that ultimately failed to save the Soviet Union from dissolution in 1991, when 15 constituent republics gained independence from Moscow's yoke. But even after all these years, one question remains unanswered. Who pulled the trigger on that fateful day in 1969? 
Brian Bastable reporting live from somewhere within the twisted corridors of history. 1957. The year is 1957 and the NYPD has finally apprehended the elusive mad bomber George Metesky. Over 16 years he planted over 30 bombs in New York City's public buildings and movie theatres. His choice of hiding spots ranged from phone booths to storage lockers and restrooms. As we await further details on this extraordinary case, let's hand over to our correspondent Ken Shit for a deeper dive into the Mad Bomber's reign of terror. Greetings, fellow degenerates. Tonight we take a dark stroll down memory lane, all the way back to the hallowed year of 1957, the year when the Mad Bomber, George Metesky, went from being a shadowy spectre to a flesh-and-blood nightmare. For 16 long years, this maniacal mastermind planted over 30 bombs in the heart of New York City. He targeted public buildings, movie theaters, and even public restrooms, transforming them into explosive death traps. And the twisted genius of this madman? He used phone booths, storage lockers, and restrooms as his secret hideaways for his deadly devices. But the party was over when the NYPD finally caught up with this crazed culprit. And on this fateful day, the city breathed a collective sigh of relief, knowing that the reign of terror of the Mad Bomber had finally come to an end. So tonight, let us raise a glass to the brave men and women of the NYPD who brought this twisted tale to its explosive conclusion. And let us remember that no matter how dark the night may seem, there will always be a dawn breaking on the horizon. This is Ken Shit reporting from the edge of the abyss. And remember, folks, stay safe out there. 2012. In a momentous move, Croatia has cast its vote to join the European Union, a political and economic union of 27 member states. This decision heralds a new era for the Balkan nation as it prepares to embark on a journey that will see it sharing close ties with its European neighbours. And now, for an in-depth look at the implications of this decision, we turn to our resident EU expert, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here in Zagreb, where scenes of jubilation this evening as the referendum results came in. A resounding 67% voted yes to EU membership. Croatia set to become the 28th member state on July 1st next year. That's great news for Croatia, Pesto. But I understand there was some controversy surrounding this referendum. Well, yes, Martin. The campaign was marred by some unfortunate gaffes. The Yes campaign slogan, Let's Get Croatia Into Bed With Europe, was criticised as being overly suggestive. And the No campaign didn't help matters with their slogan, We Don't Need No Fornication. Good grief, it all sounds rather sordid. It raised a few eyebrows, certainly. But the Croatian people have spoken loudly and clearly tonight in favour of joining the EU bedfellows. Please stop using that metaphor, Pesto. It's unseemly. Let's move on. What concessions did Croatia have to make to secure EU membership? Well, they've had to commit to various reforms demanded by Brussels bureaucrats. Reducing corruption, privatisation measures, accepting EU laws on gay rights, environmental standards, and the Croatian government agreed to all that just to get into bed with Europe? They must have been desperate. Indeed. But now the honeymoon period begins, and they can finally consummate this long-sought-after relationship on July 1st. It's going to be quite a night for the Croatians. Pesto, this is supposed to be serious political analysis. Kindly refrain from the sexual innuendo. 
You're right, Martin, I apologize. It is a momentous occasion for Croatia and Europe. Back to you in the studio. Just stop talking, Pesto. 1987. In a stunning turn of events, Pennsylvania State Treasurer R. Bud Dwyer ended his life during a press conference in 1987. This followed his conviction for accepting bribes, a practice that involves the corrupt solicitation or transfer of value in exchange for official action. It's worth noting that not all gifts of money or items of value equate to bribery, especially when they're available to everyone on an equal basis. Dwyer had previously served in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and State Senate before becoming treasurer. His tragic act unfolded during a live press conference, an event where notable individuals or organisations speak and answer questions. Now, to delve deeper into this extraordinary story, we turn to our correspondent Melody Wintergreen. In a scene more shocking than any political thriller, Pennsylvania State Treasurer R. Bud Dwyer stands before a sea of reporters, his career capsized by the turbulent tides of bribery. Convicted of trading political favors for personal profit, Dwyer's final act is set to unfold not behind closed doors, but on the public stage of a press conference. As cameras roll and journalists brace, Dwyer delivers his last address to a Commonwealth caught in the crosshairs of corruption. The air crackles with tension as Dwyer reaches into an envelope, not for a statement of remorse, but for an instrument of demise. In a heart-stopping moment that will etch itself into the annals of American history, Dwyer turns the press conference into a macabre spectacle, his life ending with the flash of metal and a bang that echoes beyond the confines of the room. As silence descends upon the stunned assembly, it's clear that this tragic tableau serves as a grim reminder when power is poisoned by greed, the fallout spares no one. And so, from the hallowed halls of Harrisburg to homes across America, we grapple with a narrative that blurs the line between governance and Grand Guignol. This is Melody Wintergreen, amidst the aftermath at Pennsylvania's capital. News Bang, taking a trowel to the tangle of tall tales. Polly Beep takes the helm for a look at air travel's past and present, as well as an ill-fated maritime voyage. Keep those time machines revved up because we're just getting started. Welcome back, dear listeners, to our thrilling time travel adventure. It's Monday, the 22nd of January in the year 1970. I'm your guide through this swirling vortex of events, none other than Polly Beep. Fasten your seatbelts and hang on tight. It's going to be a bumpy ride. First up on our itinerary is the airborne dance floor, also known as the Boeing 747. Pan Am, with its penchant for luxury and innovation, is adding a touch of flamboyance to the New York-London route. This week, she introduces the world's first wide-body commercial airliner. If you're on your way to Europe on a B747, don't forget to wave hello as you soar over the Atlantic Ocean like a gleaming silver herring. Now, fellow travellers, brace yourselves for some unsettling news from the year 1906. It appears that the SS Valencia has encountered an unfortunate hiccup off the coast of Vancouver Island. As we speak, rescue efforts are underway in this treacherous region called the Graveyard of the Pacific. If you're journeying along these perilous waters in search of adventure, or perhaps fleeing a pesky volcanic eruption, 
keep your eyes peeled for any signs of distress. And remember, safety first. As we venture deeper into this time-travelling escapade, expect more intriguing updates from both past and future events. Keep tuned to Newsbang for your dose of history in high gear. And don't forget, stay alert behind the wheel or rudder. We wouldn't want any disasters occurring while we travel through time together. Newsbang, driving the truth to the top of the charts. Here to take us through the reigns of Mohammed II and the Convention Parliament is our royal correspondent, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Let's delve into the regal tomfoolery together. Nice and easy. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. Welcome back to your favourite time-travelling soiree, where we journey through the annals of history with your ever-faithful guide, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. As the clock strikes seven and the stars begin to twinkle over the rolling hills of Ireland, let's embark on another regal adventure. Ah. <laughs> now folks, brace yourselves for a bit of royal tomfoolery as we travel back in time to 1273. Mohammed II is busy becoming Sultan of Granada after his father's untimely demise. He's got big shoes to fill, but with his dad's policy of independence and dealing with rebellion still fresh in his mind, he's ready to take on the world or at least his little corner of it. Ah. <laughs> the Emirate of Granada was quite the hot spot back then, the last Muslim state in Western Europe, no less. Muhammad ibn Yusuf ibn Nasrar was the man who started it all. He rebelled against Al-Andalus' de facto leader and managed to snag several southern cities for himself. And what did he do when faced with Ferdinand III of Castile? Why, he surrendered Jan in exchange for a truce. Now that's what I call diplomacy. <laughs> but let's not get too carried away with our Spanish escapades just yet. We need to hop across the channel and visit our friends in England in 1689. The Convention Parliament has convened to transfer those crowns from James II to William III and Mary II, after old Jimmy, two times fled to France like a coward following the Glorious Revolution. <laughs> James II was quite the character, last Catholic monarch of England, Scotland and Ireland. But alas, his reign came to an abrupt end thanks to William III and Mary II, the original poisoned dwarf perhaps, taking over as joint monarchs. The glorious revolution was relatively bloodless compared to some other revolutions we know, cough cough French revolution. But pro-Stuart revolts caused a few casualties here and there. Let me tell you folks, these royals were always up for a bit of drama and intrigue. It makes me wonder what kind of shenanigans they would get up to if they had access to modern technology like social media or reality TV shows. Now, that would be something worth watching. But until we can travel back in time, or forward enough for that particular spectacle, we must content ourselves with these fascinating tales from history. So keep those letters coming my way. I love hearing about your own little royal stories or any other oddities you might come across in your daily lives. Until next time, dear listeners, remember, life is but a tapestry woven from threads both grand and mundane. So cherish every moment and every story you encounter along the way.
Today, we're taking a trip back to 1984 when Apple unveiled the Macintosh during Super Bowl X Fuse I, 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 I. This groundbreaking personal computer with a graphical user interface was introduced in an iconic commercial inspired by George Orwell's novel, 1984. The Macintosh revolutionized how users interacted with electronic devices through graphical icons. Fast forward to today, and Apple Inc. continues to innovate with products like the iPhone and iPad. For more on this story, let's turn to our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway. A most memorable day. Cromarty, occasional rain. The day we first set eyes on the wondrous Macintosh. Fair Isle, light variable. The year is 1984, Super Bowl, X-Fight, I-I-I, the big game. A slight but soggy rain came, Viking, occasional poor. Apple, based in Cupertino, introduced the world to their new personal computer. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. The Macintosh, a shiny white marvel, Hebrides, occasionally rough. The first to boast a graphical user interface, Forties, veering east, becoming rough. Orwell's 1984 loomed large. German bite, fair, occasionally poor. It was a cold, dark day. Apple's commercial, a riveting spectacle, chromati, good, occasionally poor. A squad of silicon slaves, Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. The 1984 ad blasted onto the world stage becoming an iconic staple of the technology industry. Trafalgar, good, occasionally poor. It's time to take a gander at the charts. Trafalgar, west, becoming southwest, five or six. And the Super Bowl, an annual celebration of sport and capitalism. Hebrides, occasional rain. The Oakland Raiders and Washington Redskins, battling it out. Cromarty, occasionally rough the former emerging victorious, securing the coveted Lombardi Trophy. Lundy, fair, occasionally moderate. A true landmark day in the history of computing and of sport. Biscay, occasional rain. The day the Macintosh came to life, Rockall, occasionally poor, and the Raiders defeated the Redskins. Hebrides, good, occasionally poor. In summary, Trafalgar West becoming Southwest, five or six. The Macintosh revolutionized personal computing, while the Super Bowl offered a thrilling showdown between two titans of American football. Fastnet, fair, occasionally poor. Business. Newsbang, firing the shotgun of truth at the fleeting moment of now. Um, fifteen oh six. In a remarkable twist of fate, we find ourselves in the year 1506, where history has decided to take a detour into the realm of the surreal. The pontifical Swiss Guard, established in this very year, has descended upon Rome with one objective, to safeguard the Pope. But who is this Pope? None other than the Supreme Pontiff and head of the global Catholic Church, as well as the Bishop of Rome. The current incumbent is none other than Francis, who ascended to his lofty position in 2013. To shed more light on this intriguing development, we turn to our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Always a pleasure to be here on this fine January evening. The new year is off to a brisk start. Why, it feels as though we just bid farewell to 1506 and here we are in 2024. My, how time flies. Yes, Sid. Yeah, okay. Speaking of 1506, that momentous year saw the formation of the Pontifical Swiss Guard in Rome. Appointed as personal sentries to the Pope, their colourful uniforms have become quite iconic. Though I dare say the outfits are a bit silly. All those stripes and puffy pantaloons. Like court jesters guarding the palace. Which reminds me of a joke my great-uncle Pippin used to tell about a hapless castle guard. This guard, we'll call him Percy, was extremely nearsighted and quite bumbling. One night on watch duty, who should come staggering towards the castle gates, but a knight returning from a rowdy night of revelry at the local pub. Halt, scoundrel, cries Percy, and declare yourself. The knight, armour askew and slurring his speech, responds, "'Tis I, Sir Borscht of the Onion Patch.' Percy squints at the knight, unable to make out his face in the dark. A likely story, he huffs. What proof have you of your identity? <laughs> Sir Borscht thinks for a moment before proclaiming, I swear on my mother Mildred's grave that I am who I claim to be. Let me pass. <laughs> Percy considers this and decides it's proof enough. Very well, Sir Borscht. You may enter. And he opens the castle gates to the dishevelled knight. The next morning, Percy relates the prior night's encounter to the captain of the guard, feeling rather proud of himself. But, to his dismay, the captain turns pale and says, Percy, you fool, Sir Borscht of the Onion Patch died in battle five years ago. His mother Mildred is still alive and well. <laughs> Poor Percy realised then that he had let an imposter into the castle on his watch. He was dismissed from guard duty immediately and lived out his days as the court jester wearing the hat with bells as penance for his blunder. <laughs> and that, my friends, is why you should never trust the sworn oath of an inebriated man claiming to be a knight named Borscht. A silly tale, but one never knows what lessons history and humour may impart. Please do enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs> Just time for the headlines. The Times. Japan invades island of New Britain. There's a picture there of a bamboo stick with flags on it. The Independent Lead, with Second Partition of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for the Russian Empire and Prussian King. And the Daily Mail has Milton Keynes flattened into four towns and 15 villages. That's all from us tonight. And remember, if you're ever feeling down, just think of the people who have to clean up after the circus. Good night from me, and good luck from the weather forecasting department. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>